And so we come today to this story that we just read together, uh, the story of Thomas and Jesus. And I've entitled the message today, Jesus and the Doubter. Um, if you were to look in Webster's Dictionary, you would, if, if you're to look under the word skeptic, you would find the definition. Then if you scroll down, you'll get to the synonyms. And one of the synonyms for skeptic is doubting Thomas. I thought that is funny. <laughs> you know, skeptic, what is the definition? And what is the synonym? Doubting Thomas. So uh, I thought that, that it was funny, but I also have to say that I did not think it was really accurate. I didn't think it was a valid synonym because Thomas wasn't a skeptic in the way we often use the term today, especially the way we use it in reference to those who disbelieve religious claims. Now, we talked in a previous study, remember we looked at Jesus and the cynic, and we talked a little bit about the difference between a skeptic and a cynic, and we saw that they're similar, but there are some differences uh, so Thomas wasn't really, um, he, he wasn't a skeptic, in the, like I said, in the, in the sense that we would use it today. Thomas is a genuine believer in Jesus, but at this stage, his belief has limitations. And so he's, um, he's stumbling over this one thing, but it's not that he's not believing in Jesus. He just, there's just this part of it that, that's a stumbling block for him at this point. But when, when we look at Thomas, we see that not only was he a genuine believer who was, uh, you know, at this stage uh, having limitations to his belief, but his personality seems to be such that he has no problem expressing himself um, when it comes to things that he doesn't get or deem plausible. So in other words, Thomas was the guy who, you know, if he didn't get something, he wasn't going to sit there and pretend like he did. You know how that is? Sometimes, you know, you're sitting in a class and, you know, the teacher goes through the whole explanation. They say, does everybody get it? And you're sitting there. You have no idea what the teacher just said, but you're going, yep, yeah, I got it. Sure. Because, you know, you don't want to look dumb. And, um, but Thomas wasn't that guy. Thomas is like, of course I didn't get it. You know, wait, what are you talking about? Uh, there's a few other times in John's gospel where we, we hear from Thomas and one of them gives us this kind of insight. Jesus in John chapter 14, Jesus says to all of the disciples are all together. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? So you see everybody else is just going, yep, yep, we know, sure. And Thomas is like, no, we don't know. That's his personality. And so with Thomas, rather than seeing him, like I said, as the skeptic, no, he's a believer, but he's struggling with unbelief at this moment, 
like all of us do at times. So the reality is we all struggle with unbelief. And if there's anybody who could say, you know, I've never had a doubt in my life, well, I'd like to meet you afterwards and congratulate you because you're probably one of the few people on the planet that has not struggled with doubt to some degree. So that's how we need to, first of all, (coughs) understand Thomas. Now, he's commonly called Doubting Thomas, so we'll just take that um, and go with it here. What, what is it to doubt? What, is, what are we talking about? Well, it's important that we're clear on this because a lot of people feel like they have let God down because of doubt when in actuality, they are not so much doubting as being tempted to doubt. And there is a huge difference between the two things. Now, I cannot prevent myself entirely, at least, from being tempted. There, there are things, you know, there are obvious things that I can pr- uh, prevent myself from being tempted from by not, not putting myself in a place. But when it comes to something like doubt, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain, there's a certain vulnerability that all of us possess where uh, I can't stop these thoughts from coming into my brain. But that's not doubt necessarily. Quite often, that is the temptation to doubt. It is actually the devil putting suggestions into our minds that we would doubt God's word, God's truth, God's promise, whatever it might be. So it's important to understand that because the temptation to doubt is not doubt, and therefore the temptation to doubt is not sin. And I say that because sometimes people walk around feeling like, uh, man, I am so condemned because I've doubted God in my mind. I just keep doubting over and over again. When in, when in matter of fact, what, what it is really happening is you're being tempted. You're being bombarded with temptation by the enemy to doubt. So there, there is the temptation to doubt. We need to recognize that. But then, of course, there, there is real doubt or unbelief. And there is obviously a real danger in real unbelief or doubt. You see, real doubt, if persisted in, can become true unbelief. And true unbelief always will lead to disobedience. And disobedience, if it's continued in, will always result in spiritual shipwreck. And so we we do have to be aware that if we buy into the temptation to doubt. If we start acting upon those suggestions that come our way, if we embrace them and begin to live according to them, then we put ourselves in a very dangerous situation. But what is the answer to doubt? The answer to doubt is to seek the truth, to weigh the evidence, to believe the facts, to trust God's word and his promises. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but here is a place where the Christian faith is actually quite unique. Did you know the Christian faith welcomes challenges? Did you know the Christian faith allows for, gives room for honest doubt and allows its claims to be questioned? Now, that's a a unique thing because that cannot be said of 
other faiths. You, in, in many cases, if not in most cases, you are not free to, to question or to challenge. You are, you know, the, the claims are stated and you are to simply believe them and you're not to question them at all. That's not the Christian faith. God said through the prophet Isaiah, he said, come, let us reason together. See, the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is uh, the, you know, the, the claims are presented and somebody could say, well, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's true. And God doesn't say, okay, I'm gonna strike you dead right now because you, dis, you, know, you disbelieve me. No, God says, well, hey, let's talk about it. That's what it means to reason together. And this is what you find consistently through the scriptures, that same thing that God said, let us come, let us reason together. This is how the apostles, the proclaimers of the gospel, this is how they went about their ministry. We read concerning the apostle Paul, for example, that he reasoned in the synagogues and marketplaces of Athens. Paul went into the synagogue. The synagogue, the people in the synagogue didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul went in and he presented the case. And they responded back and said, no, no, we don't believe that because of this, that, and the other thing. Paul said, oh, no, well, let me tell you why you're wrong about that. But there was this, this reasoning. And the same thing took place in the marketplace. Paul eventually made his way to Mars Hill, which was the seat of philosophy in Athens at the time. And there he presented the case for Christ. And as we follow Paul's life and ministry, we see him reasoning with the Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and then we see him uh, standing before King Agrippa. You see, the misconception that's out there is that Christians are people who uh, they've just, you know, what, what you're called to do if you're gonna become a Christian is you take a blind leap of faith. It's like you're leaping into the dark. And, you know, some, somebody has said it like this, you know, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you know, just check your brain at the door before you enter the church. No, that's not true of Christianity. It is true of other religions, though. It is true of the cults. You do check your brain at the door. You're not able to challenge. You're not able to question. You're not able to bring up why that possibly might, might not be right. But... This is not the case with the Christian faith. You see, the gospel is based upon historical facts that can be searched out and verified in the same way as any other historical event. That's what the gospel is. Of course, people don't realize this and they make, you know, they, they make claims based on that kind of ignorance and they say, oh, well, you know, the gospels, they, they kind of, see them as it's just some sort of mystical thing. But no, you, all you got to do is read the New Testament. You find that, wow, this is like a historical document. Again, this is not like other religious literature, which is mystical and esoteric. This is a, just a straightforward historical account of the events in many cases. I think of Paul when he was there before King Agrippa, and as Paul was presenting his case to King Agrippa, Festus, the Roman governor, was there, and Festus suddenly interrupts Paul, and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Much learning has made you mad. And Paul says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, 
but I speak the words of truth and reason. And the king before whom I speak knows these things to be true because this thing, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, this thing was not done in a corner. You see, Paul says, no, the king knows these things are true, Festus. This, these are actual events. These are historical things that have transpired and this is not, a, you know, this is not madness as you uh, perceive it to be. So when it comes to the gospel itself, and of course the, the cornerstone for the gospel is the very thing that we're reading about in this story. The cornerstone for the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity is true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is false. And we're all absolutely wasting our time here today. And everybody else has been for 2,000 years if, if Christianity isn't true. Paul the apostle put it this way. He said, if we believe Jesus rose from the dead and he really didn't, we are of all people the most to be pitied. And it's true if you think about it. I mean, if we're all sitting here, you know, lifting our hands and we're worshiping and yet Jesus never came back from the dead... What are we doing? We're just fooling ourselves. So there's, there's no virtue in believing something against the evidence. There's some evidence that says, no, Jesus really didn't come back from the dead. And for us to insist that he did, even though the evidence, uh, you know, is against it, then we, we would just have to, and in order to hold on to the position, Paul says that would be pitiful. So, Eyewitness testimony, when it comes to the resurrection, eyewitness testimony is one of the evidences that the scriptures offer as proof of the resurrection. Now, there, there are many other evidences, and I'm, it's not even my purpose today really to go so much into uh, an, an argument for the resurrection, but I do, I do want to just pause for a moment and touch on this one evidence, which is eyewitness testimony, because the text itself is bearing witness in that way, right? It's the, these are the eyewitness, the, the accounts here of the men who actually saw the resurrected Christ. So when it comes to eyewitness testimony, eyewitness testimony is really, that's the most powerful testimony that there is, right? In a court of law, at least if you have a righteous court, a just court, um, eyewitness accounts are going to be what in the end is going to swing the decision and it's going to go in the direction of the facts, or at least it should. And so if you get enough people that saw something happen and their testimony is credible, then you have to conclude that this happened. Well, this is what we have in the pages of the New Testament. We have all of these uh, eyewitnesses. We have the uh, 11 apostles, we have uh, the 120, a number that, of, of, of those who saw Jesus later. We have 500, Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15, that over 500 brethren saw the resurrected Christ at one time. And then he appeared to James, and he appeared to Peter, and then Paul says he appeared to me. So all of these people are, are eyewitnesses. And some say, oh, well, but they made it up. They didn't really see Jesus. They just made up the story. The problem with them making up the story is that they all suffered 
were beaten, imprisoned, and some even died for the story. So do you think that they would do that if the story wasn't true? Because if the story wasn't true, they would have known it wasn't true. They would have made it up, right? But if you make up a story that in the end puts your head on a chopping block, you're probably going to say before the ax comes down, hey, hey, wait, wait a second. We just made this story up. Now, a man named Charles Coulson, some of you might know that name. Uh, Charles Coulson, he was part of um, uh, President Nixon's administration back in the 70s. He was involved in the Watergate scandal. He was one of those uh, men who was convicted um, and sent to prison. And in the course of this whole thing, he actually became a, a believer in Christ. He was not a Christian. Going into the Watergate scandal, he came to Christ through that. But he wrote uh, his story, a book called Born Again. He wrote that after the fact. And he talks about this very thing uh, in his book. Listen to what he said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. <laughs> That's an interesting twist. Watergate proved it to me. How? He said, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. He doesn't add executed, but some of them were executed as well. He said, they would not have endured that if it weren't true. And then he says this, Watergate <clears throat> embroiled 12 <coughs> of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So he's building this from his own, own experience, but it's true. So with the resurrection of Jesus, although there are many other things that, like I said, it's not my intention to really go into that today, uh, the eyewitness testimonies are powerful if we take that seriously these days, eyewitness testimony, which, of course, we should. But what I really want to focus on is more Jesus and his dealings with his struggling apostle, Thomas. And so... I want you to notice, first of all, how Jesus responded to Thomas's doubt. And what I want you to notice is first the negative. Notice that Jesus didn't threaten him, punish him, or banish him. And that's what I was saying earlier. You know, other religious systems are going to threaten, punish, banish, Whatever, you know, you're done. You, you don't ask these questions. You, you just believe this. But Jesus does not do any of those things with Thomas. What does he do? Jesus actually answers the very, in the very way that Thomas wanted to be answered on this particular issue. Remember what Thomas said there in Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What happens? Verse 27, then Jesus, as he appeared in the room, he said to Thomas, this is eight days later, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side, do not be unbelieving, 
but believing. I think it is just so interesting that Jesus gives to Thomas the very evidence that he was asking for. The very evidence. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hand there. Jesus says, Thomas, come and do this. And you see what this tells us is that the Lord knows exactly what each of us needs to overcome our doubts, and he gives us what we need. He gives us what we need. Now, in my own personal experience, I can, I can stand before you today and I can say, you know, this is true in my own life experience. And I'm sure many others would say the same thing. But, you know, in the seasons in my life where I have gone through times of doubt. It's been amazing how the Lord has just met me just right where I needed to be met at the right time. As I said earlier, Thomas, in a sense, is a, he's an example of all of us. We, we all go through these things. We're tempted to doubt. Sometimes we, we, we crumble under that pressure and we begin to doubt. But the Lord is faithful to come along and Sometimes it's through a passage of scripture uh, being illuminated to us. Sometimes it's a message that's being given by a preacher. Uh, sometimes it could be a word spoken by somebody that is around us. We might not even be part of the conversation. We might just overhear somebody say something and suddenly the spirit of God goes, that's it right there. That's for you. Might be a circumstance. Suddenly you're in a circumstance and the circumstance itself just speaks to you about that very thing that you were struggling with. You know, I can think of at least two occasions in my own life where this very thing that I'm talking about happened. There, there was a season I've talked about before, I've alluded to the fact that I battled with a, a chronic illness for many years. And uh, during, of course, during times of you know, physical affliction and so forth, you, you're vulnerable. Those are the times when, you know, the devil's not a gentleman, he's a thug. So he tries to, you know, he kicks you when you're down. And I remember going through these seasons of just having, um, you know, being plagued by doubt about everything. And, you know, it just seemed like there was no forthcoming answer. There was no help. And it was just this dark, dark period. But, but I remember one moment during that time, I picked up a book that I had in my library. It's a two volume uh, biography, or actually it's an autobiography uh, of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a, a famous Victorian era, era, uh, era preacher he was uh, very well known in London and around the world. Um, but he was also well known for, for living with physical affliction. And so anyway, I picked up his biography. And I mean, this is like two volumes. You know, each volume is probably 450 pages. So this is like 1,000 pages. You know, this is a thick volume. And buried deep in this book, and somehow I, I made my way to this, this particular page, there was Spurgeon describing his experience, which was my experience. And I cannot tell you how much that helped me, how much that ministered to me, because it just reminded me that God's servants have gone through this before me. And just like God brought Spurgeon through it, he would bring me through it. 
But you see, my point is, it was just at this, this moment in time, there is no doubt in my mind that the Lord himself led me to that page in that book. The Lord led me to read the book at the time. I didn't know this was in there. I wasn't, I wasn't picking up the book to read it to think I was going to get the answer to the, the issues that were plaguing my mind. But that's exactly what happened. You see, that's how God works at times. There was one other situation that comes to mind. I was, and again, all of this is around the same time, but I was in that state and just wondering in that state, you know, uh, about the future and, and doubting everything and just, you know, it was a difficult time. And I, Cheryl and I went on a vacation with Pastor Chuck and Kay. And on the vacation, Pastor Chuck was speaking at a church. And so we went to church that morning. But I remember waking up that morning and all week long, it had been a, just a time of wrestling and just, you know, battling through doubt and these things. And, but I remember waking up that morning and, and saying to the Lord, Lord, you have got to speak to me today. I, I've got to hear something from you. I can't, I can't go on like this. So we went to church that morning. Pastor Chuck got up to speak. He announced his text. It was Habakkuk chapter 2. And I remember when he said it, I thought, oh, no. <laughs> this is not the text. This is not what I need. I had heard Pastor Chuck give that sermon at least five times before that. And I was certain that there was nothing there that was going to speak to the thing that I was, you know, really wrestling with that morning. And I, and I remember just thinking to myself, oh, great. And so, you know, he started preaching and he went and I, you know, I had heard it before. So I pretty much, okay, yeah, he said this now. He's going to go here and then he's going to say that. Then he's going to here and say that. And that's exactly what he's doing. And then all of a sudden he takes a turn and he goes off on a completely different tangent. And guess what? At that moment, it was like everybody in that building disappeared and I was sitting there alone and it was no longer Chuck Smith. It was God himself speaking right to me. And it was all of those very things that I was struggling with and those things I was doubting and the, the uncertainty of everything and what about this and that. And, you know, it, the Lord was just speaking right to me and just saying, Brian, you are going to trust me. You are going to live by faith. That's what this is all about. And, you know, that was 30 plus years ago. I, I remember that like it was yesterday. But my point is, just like Thomas, he had a need because of who he was. He had a need. No, I got, I got to see this. I got to touch Jesus. Uh, and, and Jesus met him right there. The Lord did that for me. And he does that for you too. And he will do that for you. And maybe today you're that person. Maybe you're that doubter. Maybe you've come in plagued by doubt. God has spoken and he's promised things, but you just can't see how they're ever going to come to pass. But the Lord is saying to you, trust me, believe me. And he's giving you the thing that you need. And maybe it's what I'm saying here today. Maybe that's the very thing that you need for God to remind you. But we see this so beautifully with Jesus and his dealings with Thomas. Now, Thomas, of course, that's it. That's what he needed. His confession, my Lord and my God. So it's all cleared up now. Thomas is certain. Now, Thomas, of course, you know, felt this way before, but the crucifixion stumbled him. 
But now he knows that Jesus has risen from the dead. So he knows that Jesus is his Lord and his God. But notice that the Lord himself doesn't totally let him off the hook here. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, of course, did you know there's a blessing upon you just naturally? Because you have never seen Jesus, but you've believed. So there, there's just a blessing upon us who have not seen, and yet, and yet we have believed. But as I said earlier, God doesn't call us to take a blind leap of faith, but know this, he does require that we have an exercise faith. Faith is essential. God is never gonna give you 100% certainty on anything. He won't. Because if he did, you would not have to exercise faith. So there's always gonna be some amount of faith. But again, it's like with, with the Christian faith itself, the bigger picture of just the, you know, the, the message of the gospel. It's not blind faith. God's not saying, don't investigate this. Don't look into it. Don't just believe it. No, he says, come and let us reason. Do your inquiry. Do your study. Do your research. He, he calls us to do that. Just a side note, but did you know that in uh, throughout the history of the church, there have been uh, those skeptics and those cynics and those, those people that have been absolutely certain that all of this was just a bunch of nonsense and that there was no truth to it whatsoever, but people persisted in believing it, so they decided, you know, we're gonna once and for all put the nail in the coffin of Christianity. We're gonna prove to everybody, to the world, we're gonna prove that none of this stuff ever happened. And there, there were two British guys back in the 18 or 17 or 1800s. I can't remember which it was. And um, Lord Littleton was one of them. And I can't remember the other guy's name. Um, but they, they decided, they said, okay, if, if we can disprove the resurrection and if we can disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, then we will have... Uh, destroyed the Christian faith. So they set out to do it. And they were men of means and they were men of intellectual you know, ability and so forth. They set out to do it. One went off to do the research on the resurrection. The other one went off to do the research on the apostle Paul. They came back to compare notes and guess what? They decided that it was all true and they both became Christians and they both became uh, advocates of the faith. You know how many times this has happened in history? We just showed the Case for Christ film last uh, Friday night. We're showing it again Friday night. It's the same story repeated over again. Lee Strobel, his whole thing. You know, he's the journalist. He's the atheist. He knows everything. He's the Chicago Tribune. He knows that all this stuff, his poor wife, she's deluded and she's come to believe this. And man, he's on a mission to just show how none of this is actually true. And where does that mission lead him? Well, it leads him to write the book, The Case for Christ. So this has happened over and over again. So, but again, it's not a blind leap of faith, but there's always the requirement. 
And you know, sometimes it's, you know, 90% evidence and 10% faith. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes the older you get in the Lord, the longer you've walked with him, sometimes it's 10% evidence and 90% faith. God wants our faith to grow. But there's always going to be that component of faith. Now, back to Thomas, between the promises of Scripture and his own experience, Thomas already had all the evidence he needed. Jesus graciously gave him more. Thomas had all the evidence he needed, right? I mean, the guys around him, they they all had the same evidence. They were like, we saw the Lord. He's risen. Thomas is like, I don't believe it. I don't believe you guys. I don't believe any of this stuff. Well, he should have. They all had the scriptures. They had the promises of God. My goodness, they'd been with Jesus for three years. Thomas had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He'd seen those miracles and all of those things. He'd heard what Jesus taught. Thomas had all that he needed But Jesus graciously gave him more. And this is where I want to go back and just say again, God knows what we need. And Thomas, remember his personality. He's a different personality than these guys. And God knows that about him. So Jesus is going to give Thomas a little more. Not that he needed it in one sense, but in another sense he did because of, because of his personality. And, and you know, God knows you and he knows that you are not like the person next to you necessarily. And the same thing that, you know, convinces them or ministers to them might not necessarily be the thing that convinces you or ministers to you. So God knows your uniqueness. He knows your individuality. And it's based on those things that he graciously helps us. I think that is so wonderful. You know, some people, it's been the, the smallest things have convinced them of the truth of the gospel. I mean, it's almost like they didn't even need any convincing. You tell them the gospel, and they're like, that's great. I want that right now. And somebody else, you tell them the gospel, they're like, that's rubbish. That's nonsense. That never happened. That's ridiculous. I don't believe any of that stuff. But you know, God doesn't dismiss that person. What does he do? He sets a process in motion that is going to convince them of the truth of these things. So this is just the beauty of how God takes into consideration the uniqueness of each one of us and graciously gives us what we need. God has already given us all we need. And Jesus also said to Thomas there, remember, He said, Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believe. You know, there is a point where the Lord is going to give everything that's needed, and then he's going to require faith. He's going to require faith. You know, a lot of times, if not most of the time, when a person has all of the facts, but still is resistant, it's no longer, it's not really about the facts anymore. You know what it's really about? It's really about control. It's really about the control of one's life. Because what you're doing, what I'm doing when I surrender to Jesus Christ is I'm not just merely giving intellectual assent to his 
you know, the validity of these claims, I am actually putting myself under his lordship. I am relinquishing the control over my own life and I'm giving it to him. That's the conflict. That's the rub. There have been many, many people that have come to the point of being intellectually convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be and who the Bible says he is, but that hasn't led them immediately to surrender to him because at that point they realize, oh no, somebody else is going to be in charge of my life. I don't like that. I don't want that. None of us like to be told what to do. And God, guess what? He's going to tell you what to do. And he's going to tell you what not to do. And that's where the challenge comes in. Because we want to be our own Lord. We want, to, we want to call the shots. But no, we can't. So there comes that place where God requires that we take that step of faith and we be no longer unbelieving, but believing. And so today, some of you are in that place where, like Thomas, you believe, but you've, you've struggled with unbelief. And the Lord is giving you what you need, and now he's saying, no longer be unbelieving, but believing. Some, some of you have actually been under attack by the enemy, and you haven't even known it. You're, you're not really doubting as much as you're being tempted to doubt. How do you know the difference? Well, the person who's doubting in the truest sense is the person who's taking that wrong information and starting to live according to it. The person who is not doubting in the truest sense is the person who maybe you're, you're plagued even by these thoughts, but yet you're not letting that determine your behavior. You're just saying, no, I, I know that that, even though, you know, all of these doubts and questions and things are here. I, I'm not letting that control me. So recognize that, that that's the work of the enemy. And Paul said, as I think we said earlier, remember he said in regard to these fiery darts of the wicked one, he said, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's through the word of God. And we take the word of God and we put it up against that temptation to doubt that's coming. We put up the truth of God against that, and that's how we, we resist. That's how we overcome those things. But maybe today also, maybe you're here, and you're, um, you're more in the category of the person who has, has not believed in Jesus. You wouldn't say that you are a follower of Jesus today, and you might also say that, you know, all of these things about the Christian faith and these claims about who Jesus is and his miracles and his virgin birth and his death and resurrection, all of this stuff, you, you, you doubt that that is true. Well, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Take up the challenge. You doubt is true? Well, search it out. And you're here today, not by accident. You're here today so you could uh, be challenged to rethink your position. There's all the information you'll ever need is, is at your fingertips to find out that these things are indeed true. 
And God wants to show himself to you. And he wants you to know that these are the facts of history. These are the facts of life. These are the things that uh, life and death hinge upon. And so it's not the kind of thing that you want to just hear about and then dismiss it. it. You know, this is the thing you want to make sure you did all of your homework on because uh, there's a, a coming day that we all are going to face when we're going to have to answer for these things. And Paul, the apostle, said that very thing on that day there in Athens at Mars Hill with the the philosophers there before him. He said, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He therefore calls all people to repentance. And he has shown us the man by which he will judge the world and he showed us who it is by raising that man from the dead. So Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent and he's gonna judge everybody and he raised Jesus from the dead so we could know for sure that there is a judgment day coming and that Jesus himself is the judge. So that is the very thing that you do not want to dismiss without making sure you have really thoroughly investigated. And so you got honest doubts. The Lord says, let's talk about it. And he will convince you if you want to be convinced. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these great encounters that we're studying here and seeing through Thomas and his encounter with you, how you treat and deal with those who are struggling with their faith. And so, Lord, we think of that one man in scripture who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we pray that for ourselves today. And Lord, I pray for anyone that's with us today who uh, maybe they've, maybe they've been battling, uh, against the enemy and they haven't even been aware of it. I pray that they would see that clearly today and I pray you'd help them to take up the shield of faith, your word, and to stand firm on your promises. And Lord, I pray for those who have maybe begun to succumb to doubt and begun to disobey you because they have let doubt uh, begin to take over their life. I pray that they would just be brought back to faith this moment. And Lord, I would also pray finally for any of those that are with us today or listening or watching, Lord, that would be in that place of, of the, the skeptic in the sense of the person who's hypercritical about these things, Lord, that they would take up the challenge to come and reason together with you. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to reveal the truth to those who really want to know it. And so do that for them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.